is going on? It's eerily quiet on the heaven-to-earth communication front. Now, that is not to say that things on the uh, earth front were not really quite active and busy. In fact, in this 400-year period, things were hardly quiet at all. We know from ancient writings and historians that in uh, the Jewish culture and this time in the ancient Near East, they were subjected to one of the most brutal dictatorships that they had ever faced from the Syrians in from 175 to 164 BC. But the Jews could only stand so much because the opposition was so brutal that they actually formed together a kind of black ops militia team to stand up against Syrian oppression. And this was led by a priestly family named Maccabees. That's him on the right. And these freedom fighters went to war in a guerrilla-style warfare against Syrian oppression, and they actually were successful in standing up to one of the most powerful military forces of their time, and they gained independence for the Jewish state in and around 164 BC. And so the Maccabees, what had happened in that time was that the temple, the Syrians had desecrated the place of worship, the temple. And so the Maccabees, because they were priests, they cleared out the temple again, and they held an eight-day festival of cleansing, which is the origin of the Feast of Hanukkah. So if someone asks you later on today, what did you learn at Jericho Ridge this morning? You can say, I learned about the history of Hanukkah at, in a Protestant uh, uh, church. But despite the efforts, the best efforts of the Maccabeans, things did not stay peaceful in this region of the world for long. The region descended into civil war, and then the Roman general Pompey, seeing his chance, decided that because there had been a civil war and the state was so weak and both sides were weakened in this process, that he would swoop in and he would take over. And so Rome began its rule over Jerusalem and over the people of Israel. And they appointed a governor named Herod, who was notorious for his force and cruelty. And so this is how the New Testament opens. That's what happens in a nutshell on that one page of your Bible that has no printing on it. In the 430 years, a lot of stuff happens. This is the backdrop of the first Christmas so to speak. Hope is at an all-time low in the Jewish people's minds. The people of Israel have been promised in the Old Testament by the prophets a deliverer from oppression and from the tyranny that they have faced. And for 430 years, generation has come and generation has gone and nothing has changed. In fact, if anything, their situation got worse and worse and worse. But all of a sudden, the silence is broken. But it's broken in a very unusual and quirky fashion. God doesn't send a prophet to the whole nation to announce deliverance. He doesn't speak to the king. He doesn't speak to the religious leaders. God breaks into the very personal reproductive history of a very old, very barren couple who lives very far out in the sticks. He's a Jewish priest, and he's about to work his last big shift. 
He and his wife are facing the additional weight of being childless in their old age. She's been unable to conceive, the text tells us. And the worries about who would provide for them once his employment comes to an end would have no doubt been percolating in the front of their mind. While he's working his shift, he's chosen to enter the most holy place of the temple, that place that the Maccabeans had cleared out and cleaned out and had again set up proper worship in the, test, in the temple area. And he's chosen to go in to this most holy place and burn incense. And while he's in there, for the first time in 430 years of recorded history, God does something. An angel appears to him. And you might think that God has a special message for the nation. Not really. God says to the man, your very, very personal, very private prayer has been heard. God is going to give you, your wife, a son, and you are to name him John. 400 years of silence, and God breaks into human history to tell an old geezer that he and his wife will have a baby, but please don't give him any beer. This is the message of hope. And the message that, that God chooses to reinitiate the New Testament with? Now, the old man has what I think is a very reasonable response to the angelic visitation. Basically, he says, Are you talking to me? Are you sure about this? How can this ever happen? I mean, you, my wife is really old. I am really old. I'm begging your pardon, Mr. Angel, sir, but have you got the right message to the right person? Maybe after 430 years, you guys are a little bit rusty. And the angel is more than a little ticked off by his lack of faith and says to the old man, because you will not believe me, you will be unable to speak until the day of your son's birth because every word that I have spoken to you is true. It is God's truth, and it will come true on time, on God's time. That's from Luke chapter 1, verses 19 in the message translation. And this is the angel Gabriel, we learn, who just a little while later delivers the message to Mary that she is going to be the mother of Jesus. But 430 years of waiting for an assignment, when Gabriel finally gets one, he gets an old sap to whom he appears in all of his angelic glory, doesn't even believe the message that he brings and that it's going to happen. But in the midst of all of this, this old couple makes a choice. They choose to put their hope and confidence in the promise of God's visitation to them. And despite her old age, sure enough, she conceives and gives birth to a son. Let's pick up their story in Luke chapter 1, verses 58 to 66. Luke chapter 1, verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her. And when the baby was eight days old, all came for the ceremony, and they wanted to name him Zachariah after his father because that was the custom. But Elizabeth said, no, no, no. His name is to be John. What? They exclaimed, there's no one in your family by that name. So they used gestures 
to ask the baby's father what he wanted to name him. Apparently, he'd played this game before. So he motioned for a writing tablet, and to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John. And instantly, Zachariah could speak again, and he began praising God. And awe fell on the whole neighborhood, and the news of what had happened spread throughout all the Judean hills. And everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked, what will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord is on him in a special way. I can't help but think about and contrast Zechariah and Elizabeth's experience and their experience with their son, John, about our own views that we often have on hope and what hope means and doesn't mean. I don't know about you, but I don't seem to have the patience that Zachariah and Elizabeth seemed to have. I mean, with me, if I'm hoping for something, I'm like a little kid that can't wait for Christmas morning to come around. If something is coming to me, I want it now. Better yet, I want it yesterday. That would have even been better. So what do you do? And what do I do when what you've been promised is a long time coming? What is our usual operational platform when it comes to hope? What do you do when God's been silent for 430 plus years? What do you do when God makes you a promise in your life that is not coming to fruition in some way? As I see it, you have a couple of options. Option one is give up hope altogether. And many people in our world and in the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth have experienced this and have chosen this path. Many people have experienced and wrestled with some type of and level of disappointment with God. And they come to a place where they say, you know what, I'm not going to believe anymore that God is who he says he is, that his promise is valid, that his character is good. I'm going to give up hope altogether. Option two is we can either give up hope or we can lower Or change or adjust our expectations in some way if hope is deferred. Sometimes we tell ourselves, well, maybe maybe God didn't actually say that or promise that to me. Maybe I misunderstood. And sometimes we choose to settle for something less. People do this all the time when hope is delayed or deferred. Lower expectations to meet reality as opposed to believing that God wants to do something and has more for them. Churches do it all the time. So you can give up hope altogether, lower or change your expectations, or, and this is what a lot of the Jewish people were pursuing in their day and time, was force things to happen. Try and force God's hand in some way. Well, if God promised to send us a deliverer and he isn't here yet, then we'll just take matters into our own hands. Thank you very much. We'll look after that whole deliverance bit. Yeah, the Romans will try and get rid of them by force. And this was the option that the Maccabeans chose and others in their day and time. They said, you know what? If God is long and deferred in fulfilling his promise, we're going to build an army and we'll just take things into our own hands and make it happen by force. Now, you or I may not do something that drastic, but we sure do have ways of setting aside hope in favor of our own vision for the future. 
But there's a fourth option that people of faith have chosen at different junctures throughout history. And it's certainly evident in the witness of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Despite the circumstantial evidence to the contrary, despite 430 years of God being silent, they eventually choose in this process to persist in believing the character and the promises of God. Listen as Zechariah reflects on his experiences in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79, and the text of this will be up on the side screens for you. Then... His father, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he gave this prophecy. It's the first recorded prophecy we have in 430-plus years. Zechariah says this, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. God has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant the covenant that he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And then he focuses his prophecy on his son and says, and you, my little son, you will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins, because of God's tender mercy. The morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us into the path of peace. See, the focus of Luke chapter 1 and the experiences of Zechariah and Elizabeth and their family, and the Jewish people, and the reflection of Zechariah on them in that prophetic word is to remind you and I that God is faithful to his promises. This prophetic word that comes to Zechariah as he's filled with the Holy Spirit reminds us of a few key components of biblical hope because biblical hope is different than the hope that we often think about. (coughs) Biblical hope for those that know and walk with God, is more than just a wish or wishful thinking. There's three key components of biblical hope that Zechariah highlights for us. And the first one that I think we see is that hope is built on trust. Hope is built on trust. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It's not pie-in-the-sky kind of stuff. Hope is grounded in a belief that the person who has made that promise to you can be trusted because they have a history and you have a history of trusting them and knowing who they are and how they work. And so hope is built upon that platform. Hope is built on the fact that God in these circumstances and maybe in your circumstances is actively working to fulfill his promises even when he seems completely silent. 
God is working to fulfill his promises. Here I think back to our experiences uh, as a newly married couple some 15 years ago. And Meg and I were working on two big projects at that time. One was we were buying a house. And the second was we were really trying to have kids. And neither project was going very well for us. We were living for an indefinite period of time in our friend's basement suite while we were uh, purchasing a townhome, and the people that we were purchasing it from were building, and so that project, as often happens, got delayed and delayed and delayed, and so we kind of began to get frustrated and began to lose a little bit of hope that that would ever come to fruition and get discouraged. And then we were, had been trying for over three years to have kids, and that wasn't happening. And I can remember when both of those things kind of it crystallized that neither was going to happen in the time frame that I wanted to. I can remember one Christmas in our friend's basement where we had packed away everything because we thought we would be moved into our house by Christmas. We had no decorations. I went out and bought one string of lights and hung it on the treadmill, which was our Christmas tree for that year, in our friend's basement. And I can remember going to bed that night thinking to myself, God, I'm angry with you right now. What do you want from me in this process? Do you want me to learn something in this process? If you want me to learn something, just tell me what it is. I will learn it. I will learn it now, and we can get on with this. And I can remember being, for a season, very frustrated that God didn't answer that particular conversation in any way. And a few months later, I was reading in my momentum journaling reading one morning in Psalm 113, verse 9. And the verse says this, God settles the childless woman in her home as the happy mother of children. And it was as if that verse just leapt off the page to me in that morning reading. And my sense was that God was saying to me, you know what, Brad? You can trust me on both of those projects. I will settle the barren mother and the barren family in a home with the mother of children. I've made a promise to you. I will do this. And I went in and talked with Meg about it, and none of the circumstances had changed. We still were in... A homeless situation. We still were not pregnant. And the circumstances hadn't changed, but that verse kind of became something that we clung to in that journey that we were on. And God was faithful to his promises to us. And eventually, a while down the road, both of those things that we'd asked God for came to fruition. Zechariah frames it in this way. In verse 68 and verse 70, Zechariah says, you know what's happened? God has visited and redeemed his people just as he promised. Zechariah is reminding himself and reminding us, God has done this before. God has done all of this before. That's one of the values of regularly immersing yourself in the stories of God's faithfulness to his people throughout history in scriptures. Because you're reminded when God's people were in trouble in Egypt, God visited them and sent Moses. 
God raised up a deliverer. When they needed deliverance from oppression, he raised up judge after judge after judge. When they needed spiritual leadership, God raised up a priest in 1 Samuel 2, verse 35. When they needed a king, God raised one up in 2 Samuel 3, verse 10. And on and on and on it goes. The biblical text reminds us, take your hope and confidence in the character of God who is faithful to us even when he seems silent and distant. Because God can be trusted with the circumstances of your life and my life. The biblical text also reminds us that this is not kind of a magic formula that we just say, I'll put my hope in God and God will come through for me. We'll get there in a few minutes and talk about what that can look like for us. But we have to remind ourselves in those times of wrestling and silence or ask God to remind us that we can trust him because that's the foundation for hope. It's not built on airy-fairy, wishful, pie-in-the-sky thinking. It's built on a person and in a trust in the character of who God is, that he has visited and redeemed his people just as he has promised. So the first characteristic of biblical hope is that it's built on trust. The second characteristic of hope we see in Zechariah's song of praise is that hope is not airy-fairy. Hope is actually very robust and substantive. Hope is active and strong. Some people think of hope as for those uh, who are weak and unable to cope with the hard realities of real life. Oh yeah, you go to church, do that kind of hope in God and Jesus stuff. You know, you, you actually uh, aren't able to look real life and the real world in the face, so you need a crutch. And guess hope will help you get there. And they see hope in God as a kind of escapist temptation. But Zechariah reminds us that hope is very robust. Hope actually should not cause us to retreat from the real world or retreat from circumstances of our lives and wait, but rather hope calls us to engage. Look at the purpose of hope as Zechariah expresses it in his song in verse 74. We have been rescued from our enemies, he says, so that we can serve God without fear. The goal of Zachariah's hope is not to retreat from the hardships of his life and circumstances and hang out, wait for some future hope in heaven. Zachariah desperately wants him and his family and his people to experience hope on this side of heaven, in the here and now. He says, I want to serve God without fear, and in holiness and righteousness for as long as I live. I want a present hope that actually bleeds into every part of my life now, that gives me that sense of approaching God and the circumstances of my life with robust confidence and not shirking back in fear. A present hope, a hope that's breaking into the reality of our lives. I picture it almost like the rays of the sun breaking over the mountains in the morning. You get a taste or a glimpse or a picture of that future hope now, which prompts us to serve and love God and others more and more. But here's the thing. We also have to realize that just because Zechariah utters this prophetic word about the arrival of hope, his circumstances have not changed. The circumstances of his people, 
have not miraculously or instantaneously adjusted. When he's finished his prophetic word, he looks out the window. When he goes to bed that night, lays his head on the pillow. Rome is still in charge. Herod is still on the throne. The Jewish people are still oppressed. The situation is completely bleak still, politically, socially. Nothing demonstrable has changed or happened. No instant change has occurred. And this brings us, I think, to our last observation about hope. That hope is firm and robust and confident because of our trust in God and his character, but hope is also patient. Because not only now did Zechariah and the Jewish people have to exercise patience for 430 years, but the promised deliverance isn't coming overnight. Yes, Zechariah experienced a partial fulfillment of that in that his son was born, and so that's pretty awesome. God's promise to him personally came true that they have a child, but the bigger longings that his hope and his prophetic word speaks to are still unrealized. That's because as much as we like, don't like it, as much as we bristle against this in our culture and our propensity to want it, now hope is patient because things come to fruition on God's timeline, which is usually very, very different from our own. Zechariah says it this way in Luke 1, 78 and 79. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who are still sitting in darkness to guide us. Again, there's that notion of guiding the way. It's not going to bump you over into the light, but guide us, set a foot, a path for our feet to choose to walk on into the path of peace. Hope has been declared, but it has not immediately materialized. Hope is deferred yet again. Even after 430 years of waiting, God says to his people, you're going to have to wait a while longer. Deliverance from every hateful hand is not a present reality for you. A clean rescue from the enemy is not a done deal. And I think for me, as I read Zechariah's story, that is one of the hardest things for me to wrestle with and the deepest challenge of hope deferred. Because as humans, it's natural to get our hopes up and to want to hope in something or someone. And expectations begin to rise. Promises that we make to ourselves that seem much closer to fulfillment than they actually are but are not here yet. And this is the tension of Zachariah's world and it's the tension of our world as well. And while we wait, we face the same temptations that we talked about earlier, to give up, to lower our expectations, to force the issue, or to wait for the timing and keep trusting in the character of God who keeps and is faithful to his promises. That's why we're reminded so often in the scriptures to be patient in hope. Romans 12, 12 says it this way, be patient in affliction while you are joyful in hope. 
the rays of hope might be breaking in, but it isn't a full sunrise just yet. I think this is the real challenge that we face when we talk about hope. It may be real, it may be substantive, it may be rooted in the character and promises of God, but it still might be a long, 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 long way off. Which makes it feel like a vapor. Makes it feel elusive. Can make us feel at times completely discouraged in the face of hardships. Zachariah felt it. That's why he said to the angel, how can this be? I, don't, I know you're telling me good news. You're declaring hope. But I just, even in the face of an angelic visitation, I can't believe that that's true. Elizabeth felt it. She knew it. She was reminded of it every time she heard the laughter of a child or she forced a smile at the news that yet someone else was having a baby but not her. The Jewish people felt the weight of hope as they lived under brutal reign of oppression after brutal reign of oppression for generation after generation after generation. And you and I feel this too in our lives, and it hurts. The weight of it can feel oppressive. And so a lot of times we just adjust our expectations so that we don't have to feel the pain of hope. But if it's worth hoping for, and it's worth hoping in, the promise that Zechariah declares is that we have a resource to cling to while we wait. We have a God who will be faithful to his promise, never to leave us, never to forsake us. A God who will be faithful to his character, even though it seems at times that he's distant, that he's far away. Because God and hope in God is more than just a wish or wishful thinking. It's a promise. It's rooted in the faithful character of the one who always keeps his promises to us. But when it seems elusive and a long way off, and we feel like hope is never going to come, we need to actually take steps to remind ourselves of the substance of our hope. And that's actually why, one of the reasons why the Christian church has practiced communion or a celebration, a declaration on a regular basis, reminding ourselves of the promises of God and his character to us. And so we're going to do that again this morning. We're going to partake in a time of communion. And I'm going to suggest a few possible responses for you here today. The first might be a response for you if you are a person who is seeking or who is curious. You might be here today. You might be getting to know a little bit more about God and finding out more about what it means to have hope, not only for this life, but for the life to come. But for today, you're saying, I'm still exploring that. I'm, not, I'm still not sure what that means, and I'm not confident in that in some way. It would be our privilege to talk with you more and lead you through a process, if you would like to do that today, to make that decision and actually say, I am choosing today to place my hope and my confidence in something of substance, in a God who is worthy of your trust. You may have been let down by other relationships. You may have been let down by the circumstances of your life. They may seem completely bleak. 
And I'm not telling you here today that if you pray some prayer and say, God, I trust you, that somehow God will miraculously make the circumstances of your life change overnight. But I am here to say to you today that people all through Jericho Ridge have made this choice and they have found God to be faithful through the circumstances and experiences of their life. God is gracious and compassionate. The scripture says he's close to the brokenhearted. He hears the cries of the weak. And today may be the day when you say, you know what, I am going to choose to put my hope and my trust in God with my life. So if that's you here today and you want that to be your response, then our prayer teams would be happy to walk with you. Dave and Jackie Pascoe are gonna be over on this side. Dave's one of our elders. I'll be over on this side under the screen over there and we would love to talk with you. You can come pray with us. We can explore that a little bit more together. And if you're a person here today who hasn't taken that step of putting your confidence in God, we would just ask respectfully that you refrain from participating in communion today because it's a declaration of that hope and that relationship of, uh, that a person has come to with Jesus. So that's one response that you might want to take. Let me suggest another one. For you here today, if you are a person who has taken that step, you might actually have walked through in the circumstances of your life some deep waters. And you might actually want to say today to God, you know what, God, I want to again today say thank you for being faithful to me. Thank you for being near to me in this day, in this moment, in this circumstances. You may have walked through a significant health challenge this year. You may have walked through a difficult family or parenting situation, a work transition, or a financial stress that God has been faithful to you through. And as you come to the communion table today, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, you might want to use this as a time to express your gratitude again to God, to say, God, I want to thank you that when I put my hope and confidence in you, you were faithful to your word, and you were faithful to me. You were faithful to us in that circumstance. Thank you, God, for walking with us through that. And you may want to actually take a moment before you go to the communion table to pray with Dave and Jackie and myself and just say, I just want to take a moment to say thank you to God for the way in which he has moved. When I put my hope in him, God was faithful. And so I want to affirm that yet again today. Maybe for you today, another response, you might say, you know what? I'm in need of hope today. You might feel that you're slipping. You might feel that God is distant from you or silent. And you may say, you know what, Brad? I don't even know if I have the faith and confidence to believe any of this stuff about God and his character anymore. We would love to stand with you and pray with you and ask that God would move in your life and in the circumstances of your life in some significant way. We would love to stand with you and ask, say, God, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You may want to take communion today as an act of faith, a declaration of faith, saying, God, I don't know what's going to happen, but I am choosing today to put my hope and my confidence in the finished work of your son Jesus that he did on the cross for me. Our servers are going to come to the table at this time. Jared Crosley will be over here at this table. Keith will be over at this table to serve. And here at Jericho Ridge, our practice, if you're new or visiting with us, is that we invite people to come to the front and partake in communion. And you can just take it 
and you can move back to your seat. You can either stand or sit as you feel like you would as the team comes and leads us in response in song. The juice reminds us of the blood of Jesus that was shed for each one of us and it was shed as a declaration of victory over the things that the enemy has planned in your life and in the world. The bread represents Christ's body that is broken for us, for the forgiveness of sins. We have, as always, at our communion tables, a gluten-free option for you if you'd like to pursue that. And Michael and the team are going to come, and they're going to lead us in two songs of response as we close our time here together this morning. Let me pray for you as we continue in worship. God, I thank you for the reality of hope. We thank you that uh, through the circumstances and ups and downs of our lives and our reality and the reality of this church family, the reality of those that we know in different parts of the world that we're connected with, that God, you continue to be faithful to your promise. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so, Father, we choose as an act of faith in this place today to reaffirm our trust and our confidence in hope, in your promises, and in your character. And God, I know that that is a big step, knowing the circumstances that many in this room find themselves in. And so, Jesus, I pray you would give each of us the confidence and faith to stand with one another as we walk this road together. And so, Father, we declare yet again your victory. We declare yet again the authority of Jesus in this place and over each life and heart that's represented. We pray you would open hearts, open our hearts to hear and respond to you as we declare yet again our trust and confidence that what you have done on the cross is enough to provide a hope for each and every circumstance of our lives. In the name of Jesus, your son, we pray with humility and invitation. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.